Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait What? A comics podcast for the Savage Critics website. After an unexpected absence in Comics Town, here comes episode 123, almost two full hours of Graham McMillan and I making hilarious ape-like noises your superior telepathic intellect transmutes into human speech. Among the topics hooped about today, Poe Pat's number three by Ethan Reilly, new work by Gilbert Hernandez and Paul Pope, separately, not together. Suicide Squad number 20 by Alice Scott and Patrick Zercher, the first issue of The Movement. Avengers Assemble number 15, All Ages Comics, Zombo, Graham Getting Retweeted to High Heaven, The Fictional Man, Iron Man 3, Marvel Studios, The Jack Kirby Omnibus Volume 2, and much, much more. Show notes are available over at savagecritic.com. We always welcome emails at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com. And as always, we hope you enjoy. And thank you for listening. Jeff Lester! Ah, <sighs> Graham McMillan! <laughs> <laughs> was that the, the opening you wanted? Was that, that the was it. We, we haven't done this for two weeks. I know! Yeah. I know! I'm, I'm, it's absurd that two weeks I'm completely like, how do I do this? Like, as soon as you, like, picked up the Skype and said my name, I was like, what? What? What's happening? <laughs> what am I, what am I doing here? Everything's back to normal then. <laughs> if we're both in the future, I think we'll, we'll be fine. Everything's normal. But it's, it feels like it's been really long, doesn't it? It does. Is it, it really just, does. It feels like we haven't done this in the longest time. No, it feels like it, it feels like it's been a month or something. It's only been t- two weeks, I think. Three, is that right? I guess well, it'll be three, three. Two weeks off. Yeah, 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 I guess that's it. Maybe that's it. Maybe having, having been three weeks since the time we last did this, I'm just like... Holy shit, like, huh, okay, well, I'm totally screwing this up already, because I'm all like, uh, Graham, uh, comic books, ha, 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 ha. Yeah, but here's the thing, it's been so long, we can actually talk about comic books. Oh, I, that's Cause, I, exactly cause it. Often we're like, you know, so did you read anything? No. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> the end. The end, ladies and gentlemen. Whereas this time, I don't know about you. I've been to the comic store a couple of times since I last spoke to you. Oh, that's not true. Since I last recorded the podcast. Right. Because obviously you were up in Portland uh, in the during that break. Indeed. In fact, one of the times you went to the comic book store was with me, in fact. Yes, so, where yeah. I found a uh, Pope Hats issue three for a dollar, which uh, <laughs> was a find. It was amazing. Amazing. The third issue of Pope Hats, easily one of my favorite comics of the last year or so. And Graham pulls not just one, but two $1 copies out of the bargain bins in the front. I was just like, holy crap. You know, I, I, I like that you were so holy crap that you actually went to the guy and you're like, what are these doing in your bargain <laughs> bin? <laughs> Which is my favorite part. You're like, I, no, it's not enough that we found them. I need to know why they're here. Seriously, I was just like, because this is just a tragic thing, you know? And he was like, oh, no, 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 no. We throw, we throw good stuff in there all the time. It's just, it's really just strictly a storage thing. And of course, part of me is like, oh, okay, that's a comfort. But the other part of me is like, Jesus. I mean, I'm glad that store invested in however many of Popat's uh, the third issue that it had to have two one dollar issues left over, but part of me is like, uh, oh, I don't know if that bodes well for you know the fourth issue. Anyway, people, Popats, an amazing. So you finally, I forget, was that your first um, first time actually reading the my... book? Room? Yeah, I'd never read it before. Um, it... I, I I loved it. Mighty it was great, wasn't so, it? So great, yeah. and I. It's so weird. It's kind of 
too good, if that makes sense. Because <laughs> the first time I read it, I was really engaged in the story because the writing is really good and the writing is really subtle. Yeah. Uh, and I remember there was a point because I, I read it. Remember, I because I, I, you were there. I like read it in like two parts. Mm-hmm. I, I sort of took a break midway through to do something. Right. Uh, and when I came back to it, I had this moment of this art's amazing. How have I not noticed that this art is so good? Yeah, 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 yeah. This... Because I was so engaged with the story, I didn't realize that the art was just. I mean, the art is staggeringly good. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It really is. That uh, that guy is just a home run hitter on all counts. Um, Ethan Reilly, is that the name? Riley? Yeah, really a Riley, yeah. Yeah, uh, just fantastic stuff. I mean, it's fascinating to me because I'm sort of like, oh, you know... It, it's it's it does him an injustice, but I'm kind of like, oh yeah, I can see influences of, you know, Seth here and Ware here and Klaus here. But the thing that's amazing is it really is all his own thing. He does all of it so well, and it's so combined into such a just a really lovely, unique tone. That, um, I, and I'm going to add to that. I see parts of David Mazzuccelli in there. Ooh, yeah, Mazzuccelli is actually. Uh, a great and pick. I also see, uh, and I never remember their names. The French creators who do the Paul series. Oh yeah, you were saying is that uh, Dupuis and Barbarian? Maybe. It's not, but them as well. Uh, okay. okay. Uh, I, they're not the ones. I don't think they're the ones who do the Paul series. Let's see. I, I think I, you're I'm going right. to try and look this up by looking up the previews that has the Nets Paul book in it, which mm. I think I have in my hard drive so I don't mess up her internet connection. Ah, very sensible. Actually, that won't work at all. <laughs> then perhaps not as sensible. I just tried and something very weird happened to my computer. Oh. Six-Gun Gorilla, talk amongst yourselves, ladies and gentlemen, because previews is roughly seven million pages long. Oh, yes, it is. Um... Yeah, it really is. Uh, can you remember who publishes Paul? I want to say Drawn is it Drawn Quarterly. Quarterly? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's it. Let's see. It might be drawn in quarterly, but it's not showing up in there. Hmm. Huh. Uh, yeah, I, I might be totally misremembering. And maybe it is between uh, Barbarian, but I uh, I don't think it is. But it, nonetheless, whoever does the Paul books, it really reminds me of that. Mm-hmm. It really also reminds me of the Dupuy and Barbarian books, mm-hmm. uh, which I always just think of it as Get a Life, but it's not. There's an entire series. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What's the series called, Jeff? Oh, dude, I don't know. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? Yes, I do. I do. But I don't know it. In fact, I'm looking up uh, Paul drawn in quarterly. Let's see what's happening My on the iPad, because I'm sensible that way. My sluggish that, that slow iPad. Sense. Good mm-hmm. job, Jeff. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to see if it's. I, I'm currently talking as I'm scrolling through uh, previews. Previews really is un, almost unbearably long. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. It's it's just there's so much. I I remember having to like look through the black line. Um, for for the whatnots who don't know, um, Graham and I have this really interesting sort of like we belong to this small elite crew of people who have write have written the the previews for the Comics Experience newsletter. And what this entails is every month we get the previews blacklined and have to distill it down to, you know, six to eight pages. Um, So every month it's just 
it's just this onslaught of flipping through books and you you have a pretty good sense of what you're supposed to write up about write up and how you're supposed to describe it but there's just so much stuff being thrown at you every it, month. it's I, and every single month without fail and i don't know if this speaks to my own biases or mm-hmm. the publication schedule every single month i almost lose the will to live while doing marvel solicits oh god yeah Oh god, yeah. Because there's just so many books there. Mm-hmm. Every mm-hmm. single month, there is always a raft of new launches and a raft of collections. I remember one month there was absolutely no UTC launches, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which I remember just being like, "This is great!" Fully like, you know, because you know, DC has so many books. If if only Marvel's like this this month, and Marvel were like, "We're launching thirty new books this month oh, and the collections," and it was like, "Really, Jesus?" Uh, Paul, <laughs> by the way, is the work of Michelle Rabelati. Ah, Rabelati, perhaps. Thank you. Um, and apparently, it comes out from Conundrum Press, which might explain oh, why we really? couldn't find it. Oh, okay, all right. Well, I'm sorry about that. That is that is certainly my mistake. Huh? I'll be danged. No, no, I also thought it was Dragon Quarterly. Yeah. Um, so, so there you go. Switch. But anyway, it's not the Queen Barbarian. Yes. Um, anyway, uh, Ethan Riley's stuff really reminds me of that. There's a very European flavor to it for me, the art at least. Mm-hmm. The writing I find in, very American. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's very uh, relaxed, if that makes sense. Like, it, it's it's very slice of life. It, it's very, for me, American cinema. Yeah. As opposed to anything I can really think of to compare it to in comics, because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. even even the uh, the majority of slice of life American comics and or all comics have uh, a sense of exaggeration. Right. This is what you're supposed to be paying attention to, or I am so tired by this. And Ethan Riley is just so saying it's flat sounds like a, a pejorative, but it's not meant to be. Mm-hmm. It's so tonally even. Yeah, in the storytelling, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that, that you're, it, you really just feel like you're you're seeing, you're reading what is actually unfolding. Yeah, without a, a, a voice of like, "Look at this; these people are jerks," or you know, "Modern life is terrible," or anything like that. You you just get the sense of you're you're. It's almost a comic documentary in a way. I yeah. I really really liked it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fabulous stuff. Fabulous stuff. Uh, I know that um, I know that other people have heard us talk about it uh, previously because um, I, I ranted and raved about it. But if this makes more people hunt up copies of Popat's number three, uh, I will be a, a very happy, happy person. Uh, oh, and two for that matter. Um, I, I, I and of course, everyone check your dollar bins just in case. Yeah, because holy cow. Jeff and I weren't looking for anything in particular. We were just checking the dollar bins. <laughs> And you know, I have to say, <coughs> Graham, um, that 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 little jaunt with you to the comic store really pointed out one of my big failings as a comic book guy that is that has only grown as I've gotten older, which is um, I'm not a very detailed long box flipper. You know what I mean? Like, the ability to go through a long box of books and very quickly flip from book to book to book to book to book. I don't... I lose patience. Like, when I was young, it was just mainly a matter of patience. But now, with my old, thick fingers and my failing eyesight and my, you know, kind of 
slightly sketchy back. Like I can make it through maybe a bin and a half speed dashing. So I, as I recall, you found those popats in sections I'd already looked in, and I was like, "Oh, I'm just I'm just a fat fuck." So um, <laughs> that was just a running theme of your visit up here, anyway, wasn't it? It kind of was. That is there was true. the donut muffins. Oh my the god, the donut muffins. Pulls. Yeah. Yeah, uh, ladies and gentlemen, for everyone who keeps hearing amazing things about the food in Portland, um, you are hearing entirely accurately. Uh, oh my God, there was just so much good food up there. Um, oh. We try. <laughs> well, and you guys succeed. And and for those people, you know, here's the weird thing, Graham. For whatever reason, um, we cannot find the pictures that I took at the waffle window. Um yeah, I Kate said you you were emailing and asking. Uh, we we did not take any photographs, but you did. Although I'm not sure you did. Kate Kate remembers you did, and I seem to remember that we actually just ate the waffles, and then you thought to take photographs. I think maybe you're right. I think that I think that makes a lot of sense, actually. I mean, one of the things that's really bad is because we sat in exactly the same table that we sat at the year before, and exactly more or less the same. Uh, positions at the table that we sat before my mind is like now that you mentioned that I'm like oh right some of the stuff I remember taking pictures of was actually waffles from like two years ago anyway nonetheless <laughs> so, sorry waffle fans oh my god but the key lime pie waffle that I had was a thing of glory I mean I normally go for the savories and then hit one sweet which uh, but, the, but the key lime pie waffle which is like the key lime crust uh, key lime filling and even some graham cracker, crushed graham cracker and some some whipped cream on top of a liege waffle, that was that was just a stunner. That was a stunner. And I wanted to come back and hit the blueberry cheesecake waffle, but like, fate was not kind to me. I think. Well, what's going to be great is people are going to listen to this and think you're just making shit up. I know. They're I know. like, there's a key lime pie waffle and a blo- and a blueberry waffle. What? Yeah, yeah, exactly. A cheesecake waffle. Who would be that insane? And, and the fact is, the Waffle Window people are amazing at that sort of stuff. So, yeah, and then uh, and then grabbing the food from the the food carts at that one pod that was that was an extraordinary situation. That was just delicious. The um, the vegan Viking food, and that's where people are going to be like, oh come on, that's like that was like a one shot from Jack Kirby from DC. <laughs> That was vegan not... Viking was great. No, come on. <laughs> vegan Viking would be Joe Kubert. You know that. Really? Joe Kubert? See, I, I can see Joe Kubert drawing it, but frankly, throwing the word vegan, and it really sounds like something that Joe Simon did, you know? like Yeah, it's Joe Simon and, Q- it's, it's Simon and Kubert in, yes. like, First Issue Special, 1976. Exactly. Exactly. Vegan Viking. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, that was also amazingly delicious. So I, I'm no like, is he a pacifist? Yeah, see, I would kind of wonder, is, like, like, does he still? Viking? Maybe he's still Viking doesn't fight. Kills people, but he like, you but know... he has like he has to be really <laughs> to the edge. Yeah, they're, they're provoking him, and he's like, "No, brothers, we are all brothers in this world." There we go, and you can uh, even yeah. see him being drawn as sort of a super scrawny Viking, you know, sort of yeah, standing yeah, there with, with like them. an oversized weapon. Yeah, that 
just carries around exactly. and it, like it, it, with very Kubert things so at one point he's sort of like hunched over and the, the, the axe or whatever is resting on the ground and he's got the handle yes exactly exactly yeah. yeah 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 I can totally see it and then of course he gets pushed too far in his berserker rage like pushes him over the edge and then he like basically sort of turns into like an enormous Hulk like thing and is crushing ships in his hands you know how in the, in the 1960s and 70s um DC War Comics, they ended with a little badge that said, make war no more. Yes. So this could end with, eat meat no more. See, this is great. I'm already like, you know, we are halfway there to a relatively decent, like, uh, I tell you, if, if, you know. Coming soon from monkey brain. <laughs> exactly. Vegan Viking. <laughs> Vegan Viking. <laughs> all we need is an artist, Jeff, and then more of a story. That's all we need. <laughs> And this is the great thing. It's comics. Not much of one, really. I mean, God only knows what we'll do for the second issue, but... Uh, oh, no, there's, it's a one-shot. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Dude, I don't know. That's what you say, but oh, I'm like... I, I, t- I think I put this on Twitter. I can't remember. The other day, I had a dream where I, uh, that I didn't remember, but when I, like, the next day, like, you know, hours later, in the middle of the afternoon, I suddenly remembered that my dream had been about a British World War II hero called Ken Dynamo. Oh my god, that's great. And Ken Dynamo had, like, his hair parted on the side and broke cream down. So, like, imagine uh, one of the servants in Downton Abbey's hair. Mm-hmm. Okay? Got it. And he had, like, a vest top and khaki pants, like, military khaki pants, and a massive fuck-off belt. You know the belt uh, the Sentry has, or, or you know, yes. Hyperion, like, the massive... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where the belt buckles pretty much most of the stomach, almost. Mm-hmm. But you know, big belts where it gets really big at their like at their abs, basically, and it's like a button over their abs. Yes. You know the belt you're talking about? Yeah. One of yeah, one of those belts. Wow. Um, and I, but I have no idea where Ken Dynamo came from. <laughs> Ken Dynamo. I was like that. So he can he can be the second issue of Vegan Viking. What we should do is we should just do a comic where every issue is a new first issue special. Oh man, you're right. And it's just completely fictional, like genre pastiches that we're doing. That would be great. I mean, I don't necessarily know how far we would people would follow us into that. I don't, I don't get anyone would follow us far at all. I'm literally talking for our own amusement. Jay. Oh well, in that case, like uh, I think we have millions of ideas frankly, because I'm like, hmm, because if Vegan Viking's good, maybe Ovo Lacto Ninja is even better. <laughs> Did I ever tell you my, like my idea for if I was ever going to do a comic, the comic I would do? No. Which would be a 2000 AD parody. So every <laughs> issue I could do five different, you know, five-page strips. Oh, that'd be but great. But you never end them. You right. just present it in different eras. So you're like, like, starts with the conclusion of a cliffhanger you've never seen. And it ends with a cliffhanger you will never conclude. And in the middle, it's like five pages of just fucking insane <laughs> hyper-genre stuff. That would be wonderful. That would yeah. be so good. Go. If I was ever going to do a comic, that would be the comic I'd do. Mm. And I would have Ken Dynamo. There you go. I've even got a character. And Vegan Viking. We have two of them. <laughs> Jeff! <laughs> the boy there! <laughs> this is fantastic. Um, you know, the funny thing is, is uh, it was really raining 2000 AD for me this week um, because I, weirdly enough, this is not a great uh, 
thing to normally I'm very quick to promote their material but um you know I have the subscription through the um iPad app and for whatever reason my subscription um auto renews uh and has done so a few times before cuz it's an every 3 months kind of thing anyway uh it auto renewed at the end of uh April but for whatever reason the app itself continued to treat my subscription like it was expired so took me a week to get it figured out so essentially this week I read last week's 2000 AD um, this week's 2000 AD uh, and then thanks to you uh, the majority of the 2000 AD free comic book day uh, prog Um, so I'm just up to my eyeballs Mm -hmm. in it Um, and yeah there's times where I'm like Graham do it but also kind of this this thing of having read three of those in a row I'm also half convinced that it's the sort of thing that Al Ewing could do you know uh, given his druthers I can actually see him at this point doing a complete piss up of 2000 AD and pretty much do it issue after issue just the way you said and, and make it work evenly uh, yeah I, I can totally see the, I have to say that the um, Zombo strip in the free comic book day uh, 2080 was a beyond perfect yeah yeah it really uh, it was just, done it, it, really, it, it was really because I don't know if you know this like I'm not big on punk but I'm, I really love situationism mm-hmm. and so like I started into punk that way mm-hmm. and so seeing essentially a Voltron as a robot lion boy band where one of them turns into uh, Graham? What just happened there? I don't know. But... I'm going to go back to the other room, Jeff Lester, because okay. I think being in here might be weird. I'm also going to reboot while we do it, so I'll give you a call back in two minutes. That's great. I'll talk to you in two. Let's get some music that's like holes music for when technical things go wrong. Yes. Although I have to tell you, I was on a call with um, a company that sells ad space for AOL and various digital companies today, like uh, part of a story for Wired. Mm -hmm. And their hold music is actually a song about being on hold. Oh, really? Yeah, it was wonderful. (laughs) And the weird thing is, so the hold music lasted whatever, like it lasted the length of the song. Mm Mm-hmm. And at the end of the song, I just went straight into the call. Wow. It was as if they timed it. It was really weird. Man, I hope that they don't. But, you know, but you never know. I guess you'll just have to call them back again in, like, some day and, and see. I'd be like, can you put me on hold? Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a country. Why is there talking about being on hold? Wow. That's kind of, uh, um, that's kind of awesome. It really is, right? The other thing that um, the other call that I've done that I wanted to tell you and or whatnot about was last week I spoke to people at IBM mm. um, about Star Trek art they've done to promote Star Trek and Starkness with um, they have this massive two ton super powerful microscope that they move individual atoms with uh-huh. on a piece of copper and then they take photographs of it. Mm. 
so they made the Star Trek art that is, you know, nanometers in in size. Where it's like the Star Trek logo made out of atoms, like individual atoms. Okay, <laughs> which is awesome, and also kind of unusual. I call to get the background in this story. Okay, mm-hmm. first of all, the man in charge is called Andreas Heinrich. Mm-hmm. Secondly, he has a comedically thick German accent when I'm talking to him. So you know, already I feel like I'm. In a Hellboy comic. Thirdly, the conversation actually starts with him going, I'm a real scientist, you know. (laughs) (laughs) It was so great. He was so... Like, that that was the greatest conversation. Wow. That sounds like that... I really look forward to seeing that piece. You know, it's... Although, I have to say, and this maybe... This is the um, introduction to our grousing part of our conversation. Oh, no, wait. It really shouldn't be, because I think we should go back to that Zombo story, which was so... Oh, yeah, okay. So, yes. Zombo, free comic book day comic. Mm -hmm. Um, Situation, guide to board. It was honestly like someone had written the story for me. It really really was... At this point, I mean, between the Beatles jokes in... Mm -hmm. The Zombo strip in the regular 2080. Mm-hmm. The Fantastic Four jokes in that in the same strip. Yes. Uh, the spectacular Kirby jokes, including this week's Thumb War. Oh my which god! Yes, <laughs> killed me. <laughs> Absolutely killed me to, to see someone do Thumb War in Kirby-esque dialogue. Yeah. I mean, was was amazing. Um, and then this situationist thing for the free comic book day. I honestly think at this point, Zombo is something I have imagined. Zombo <laughs> is something I've imagined as my perfect comic, and like all of you are reading a different comic because I I love it so much. I almost find it weird to believe that it exists. Right, right, yeah. As opposed to it being just some sort of strange, like almost like the the dream with uh, Ken Dynamo or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Zombo Zombo can be real. I like it that much. Therefore, I don't know what you guys are seeing as the fifth strip in 2080, but I hope it's as good as the one I'm seeing. <laughs> yeah, the Zombo thing, really amazing. And, and the free comic book day piece, astonishing. We should also throw in, in case anyone's like, you know, not only is it a Voltron-style boy band with punk rock and situationism and rap... But it also seems to, uh, in in some ways, also to be doing a piss take on the punk rock episode of Chips. So, it's... <laughs> which I've never seen, but I I really hope it is. Yeah, yeah. I hope, I hope that's like an extra layer of weird self awareness. Just absolutely brilliant. Just absolutely, it is. It it was that was one astonishing five pages or so. Did, um, did you get to read a bunch of free comic book day, day stuff, or or not really? No, no. I mean, uh, I didn't. I, I work during Free Comic Book Day, and I don't, uh, I you know, I ha- actually haven't even, didn't make it into the store this week because things were so crazy, so... Um... So, so I went to my local store. Oh, good. Uh, and I haven't been to my local store for Free Comic Book Day in, I think this is the first time in about three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I waited for half an hour just to get to the counter. It was so busy. Wow. Yeah. Which was stunning to me mm-hmm. uh, it was great to see so many kids were there mm-hmm. so many kids were incredibly excited about it mm-hmm. so many kids parents were assholes Ugh. I have to tell you yeah like really I mean I get that the kids are really excited and they're picking things up and you've got to so say that's actually not the free comic mm-hmm. like that's gonna happen 
what I kept saying and just made me so depressed was the kids were so excited and the parents were basically like, okay, so you're only allowed to get 10 because that's the, the rule in the store. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you you know, you can get these, but then I also want these ones. And it's kind of like, no, it's not for you. It's for your kids. <laughs> you could live without getting, you know, whatever, Aphrodite 9 or whatever it was called. Right. Well, so wait, they didn't do it? Because interestingly enough, I think Hibs has it where there's like a limit on the adult comics, but the for the kids' comics, I think the kids are allowed to have as many as they want, as long it's, as their kids no, are it's, appropriate. Ev- everyone, everyone got 10. Oh, I no see. Wow. Um, so, I mean, you got 10 individually, so like, you know, mother and daughter get... 20. 20 books okay yeah so wait but, so but it's still sad to see like the mother basically dictating to her daughter that you have to get these anyway uh, 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 wait in other words you have to get these for me is that what, what you're saying yes or? yes wow wow like on top know, of right? her on top yeah. of her 10 yeah wow that that's is sad that's, that's just like no mm-hmm. that, you're doing it wrong you yeah. actually are doing it wrong yeah yeah that's kind of a big old fail um wow no, I, uh, I, although, okay, so he, uh, interestingly, in a related, unrelated sort of thing, I know that the whatnots uh, out there are maybe somewhat aware of this, because I've mentioned it just briefly, and Graham, God bless his heart, is m- more intimately uh, acquainted with it, but I have been comic book shopping for my three-year-old niece, because she... I gave her some comics, you know, I bought her her first Scooby-Doo, like, I don't know, like, maybe about six months ago, and she is just into comics, and so, uh, as Graham knows, I had this complex list of, like, stuff that I was trying to find to be able to buy her, um, and I was... And and it's difficult to find. Oh my god, it is amazingly difficult, so, uh, you know, because she really wants stuff that's not especially... It doesn't really need to be especially sophisticated. Um, Wait, could I, I want to kind of throw this open to our listeners. Sure. So, you know, so email us at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com. Leave something in the comments at Savage Critics. Um, what Jeff's niece is looking for mm-hmm. is essentially kid-friendly superhero stuff with a female lead. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that is and, what and, I'm looking for. And when I say kid-friendly, like, we're talking... I mean, she's young, right? Yeah, she's, she's three. three. Yeah. So, like, hmm. so she's read, like, uh, some, we've read some Batman animated adventure books to her, the Superman family adventure stuff uh, that we threw her way. But she's really interested in, like, she became, com- she's and God bless her, she's completely fixated on female heroes as well she should be so she's like the instant she saw Wonder Woman she's like oh who's that and so she's really she's like Wonder Woman Wonder Woman Wonder Woman and I've been trying to find comics for her that are not people getting their you know heads cut off off or arms torn off or I mean it really is going back I was going back all the way to those not fondly remembered pre-crisis reboot days and and earlier um, to try and find stuff that would work for her and um, and the thing that's crazy is some of the Charles Moulton stuff of which I do have more reprints I'm looking at and I'm like this is kind of dicey too like for every one great story where Etta Candy like 
beats up Nazis because she has a toothache, um, you know, there's like three stories of people being, you know, <laughs> chained and forced yeah. to drink from yeah, bowls. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know? and all, like, that's just it. All, all the jokes about Morrison's Wonder Woman are kind of true. Yeah. Oh, they really are. That that that's the thing, especially when you're talking for, to like a three year old kid. I mean, they won't get the subtext, mm-hmm. but it's still weirdly creepy, and it's something that adults don't feel comfortable sharing with children. Well, see, that's it. I'm not sure that right. The kids necessarily think it's creepy, but I just it's a just a little. No, but it's creepy for us. Yes, exactly. It's super Do you know what I mean? And, so, and I think yeah. that translates when yeah. you're reading something to a kid as well. If you're like, ah, eh, then they'll be like, why are you eh? Right, and you don't want to be like, well, actually, because there's bondage overtones to this, and you don't know what bondage is, right. and so I'm now going to explain that, and that's going to be a conversation your parents are going to be really happy that we had. Yes, exactly, exactly. You know, it's, so, see, our listeners, what what's out there that's good? Like, genuinely, what if, what would you recommend to a three year old girl who wants to see female characters in action? In action. It would help if they're in color, actually, weirdly enough, because um, in, in the course of after coming back from Portland and being sort of frustrated on my quest, I started digging through boxes of books, and I pulled out some old Jet Cat Funhouse books by Jay Stevens, which I'm mm-hmm. relatively sure she will adore between Jet Cat and the Kid Mummy, but but only half of it's in color, and we'll see. I mean, again, she's three, so color like if it's not in color she's like her interest drops dramatically so i know it sounds really fussy but if anyone can like provide me with some leads that being said um consequently last week before free comic book day i was in alameda um thumbing badly through through all these stacks of um comic books at the and um and they had a ton of all ages stuff. So I actually completed the full run of Superman family adventures for her. I'm just feeding her a few issues at a time. Uh, and then there were a few other things, justice league unlimited, a few tiny Titans, et cetera, et cetera. But I, the gold mine, the stuff that I'm, that I, in fact, I saw her yesterday, gave her a few of these comics and she was instantly like, okay, read me one. And the one that she seemed to really dig was the Powerpuff girls. You know? Well, obviously exactly. That, that... Totally there in her wheelhouse. Yeah, exactly. But the thing is, is she actually really does like just the superhero stuff, like the Batman stuff with uh, that that she saw, where it was like Batman punching people and Catwoman, and you know. And again, that's the thing. I'm like, she loves Catwoman, and I'm like, Jesus God, like the amount of Catwoman product out there, as opposed to the amount of Catwoman product I actually feel comfortable letting her see, is staggering. He's well, I mean, that's staggering. just it. Catwoman has always, again, had overtones that you do not want to try and explain to a three-year-old. Right, but you know, but when 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 put in the context of a Batman uh, animated series comic book, it more or less works. Like it's kind of like, oh, it just all kind of works, you know? Well, sure, yeah, but that's because they were very good at contextualizing everything. In exactly, that and that's they were very really good at basically shoo-shooing away the problematic elements. Right, and still uh, in a way that mm-hmm. modern comics are like, hey, problematic. That probably means edgy. <laughs> exactly. Hey, let's go for it. Let's make sure that Batman and Catwoman are doing it at the end of the first issue. That'll be awesome. So, yeah. Uh, it, I have it, to tell you, have you read Just League of America issue three? No, I haven't, which is funny because I think I. it's so funny. I'm like, I read the first issue and I know I I think I read the second issue. Like the second issue did not make that much of an impression on me, I don't think. Weird the third not. issue has this great 
bizarre but kind of wonderful subplot, which is essentially Catwoman seems to be into vibe, <laughs> which I kind of love. <laughs> I don't know if it's just a joke that they're going to drop immediately, but I, I really bizarrely, uh, I'm charmed by that. That's really funny. Uh, hmm. Well, we will see. We will see where that goes. Lord knows. I, I, got, I got. I tell you, I got a big stack of DC comps in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, and I've read more DC. I've read more DC <laughs> titles uh, in the last like two days than I have since they sent me all of the zero issues. Really? Good lord, see, that's one, a ton. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Eleven comics they sent me. Um, plus the second Aquaman collection. So I mean, I have I have loaded to bear on current DCU. Man, that's fantastic. Question mark. No, it is really mm-hmm. weird thing. I ended up coming away a lot more optimistic about the new Fifty Two line than I had been for the longest time going in. Hmm. That's great. Uh, in in part because so these are the books they sent me, and you might understand what I'm talking about. They mm-hmm. sent me Animal Man, mm-hmm. Batman, mm-hmm. Batman and Robin, which is right now Batman and Red Hood, mm-hmm. Batwing, mm-hmm. Earth Two, Green Arrow, uh, World's Finest, Justice League of America, Katana, Suicide Squad, and Swamp Thing. Hmm. And what I came away with was that's actually a weirdly nicely varied set of characters and set of concepts to have ongoing series mm-hmm. you know it, it helps that I am I am liking Swamp Thing much more than I expected to hmm. Swamp Thing seems exceptionally retro to me uh-huh. uh, but in a way that seems really fresh post Scott Snyder hmm. I mean so Charles Sewell has taken over as, as Swamp Thing writer mm-hmm. and his first two issues are essentially a two issue DC Comics Presents issue from the 70s. It really is. Something goes to Metropolis. Something happens to him to making him da- make him a danger to Metropolis. Superman has to save the day. Uh. That, that is the plot. Hmm. Um, but it works in a really weird way. Hmm. I th- it might work in a way that makes me a heathen to Swamp Thing fans. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But it feels, it feels very much like something that is in keeping with... Uh, like Even Alan Moore, DC Comics Presents issue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Of Swamp Thing Superman, it feels very in in telling with that. Uh, the MacGuffin is uh, that Swamp Thing goes to Metropolis, runs into the Scarecrow, mm-hmm. squirts him with fear gas, and Swamp Thing has a really bad reaction to fear gas and basically starts freaking the fuck out and terrorizing the city. Hmm. And Superman has to save the day, essentially by setting fire to Swamp Thing. Huh. Um, which is like really, again, really retro. Mm-hmm. When you, like that's the plot. That's an incredibly retro plot. But for some somehow it works for me. Hmm. Suicide Squad is uh, Alice Scott's and Patrick Zerker's first issue. Yes, again, totally worked for me in a way that I didn't expect. I was kind of looking forward to it, but then it really reminds me of the first issue of Morrison's Doom Patrol. Huh? <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> and I was like, huh. I have gone from, you know, this is a writer I'm interested in, this is an artist I'm interested in, but it's a comic I'm not really interested in. You know, I'll see what it's like. Mm-hmm. To, well, I guess I'm going to be picking up the next few issues because I'm really curious about the dynamics that are being set up here. Huh. Uh, because there, this this issue is essentially Amanda Waller and the newest recruit to the Suicide Squad, who I could or couldn't ruin for you if you want me to. Do you want me to spoil it? Sure. 
Uh, it's James Gordon Jr. Oh, really? That's really the, funny. The, the psychopath from, from Bad the... Girl slash Detective. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, the, but the two of them basically decide to fuck with the heads of the rest of the Suicide Squad. Huh. Um, and in the fucking with the heads, you get an idea of who these characters are, mm-hmm. what motivates them, but also what Amanda Waller and James Gordon Jr. don't understand about the characters. Because mm. none of the fucking with actually goes quite right. Mm. Like, they think it goes right, but none of it really does. And there's something really in that, in the in the dissonance there, that I found really interesting. I also love that Harley Quinn is in the, the opening of the issue being like, you know, I'm Harley Quinn, here's my corset, blah, blah, blah. And then she is on her own later, and she's literally wearing, like, pink pajamas. <laughs> And I don't know why that like that one real woman. I was like, that's kind of awesome. I love the idea that she goes like, I'm on my own. I'm just going to get dressed. It's, it's like a pink pajama bunny suit or something. But that <laughs> she's like, I'm on my own. I'm actually going to wear real clothes. Hmm. Um, Katana is fine. It's hmm. it's Anna Shanti struggling to be Anna Shanti. Right. But there's enough there that I'm kind of like, ah, it it could turn into something really interesting. Hmm. I really like her Creeper reboot. Oh, interesting. Which is essentially. Creeper is a Japanese demon oh, that yeah. writes bodies. Right, right, right. And Jack Ryder is one of the bodies that, that it writes. Hmm. Um, Justice League, like I said, Justice League of America was like perfectly fine as a Jeff Johns team book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like it it did the job, which, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's perfectly fine. World's Finest was probably the least good of them, shall mm-hmm. we say. It's It was the one that most clearly fit these stereotype of what you'd expect from a DC book mm-hmm. i.e. like it's very continuity porny and didn't really have an identity in and of itself mm-hmm. um, and which is kind of weird because Paul Levitz is writing it and you kind of think that he would be one of the few who would actually have a a hook I guess mm-hmm. but he, it's it's generic to the, the point of I don't know why people buy this unless they desperately have a fetish for Huntress or Power Girl there, mm-hmm. there seems no other reason to buy it but Green Arrow, it's Jeff Lemire still doing his reboot and it's weirdly working. Mm-hmm. Earth 2 still seems like a really solid superhero book from James Robinson. Batwing is kind of a mess, but Batwing is always a mess. Mm-hmm. So we'll see what, how that's going. The Batman and Robin continues to just be absolutely awesome. I'm right. a really big fan. I really like Carrie Kelly. I actually probably like Carrie Kelly even more after this issue. Hmm. Um, the Batman book, it was the second part of the, the light Scott Snyder two-parter, which was really nice, and Animal Man was completely solid for what it's supposed to be. Like, it, they all seemed, at worst, solid. Right. But so tonally different mm-hmm. that I was like, this feels like a varied line. This feels more varied than Marvel. Uh, yeah, true. Although, I'm like, hmm. Um, but yeah, no, that that is that is a good thing. Let me ask you, uh, at the risk of sort of raining on the parade, I mean, do you no, think that no, you, right, you got the... I feel really weird for being so positive. Like, I've honestly spent a couple of days after reading them being like, that's, something's got to be wrong. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I know DC's in free fall. Why do I feel so positive towards these books? Well, because I, I, there's probably a few books that are coming out that are very strong out of that with, yeah, you know, but, good yeah, writers overall, and editors. Yeah, but overall, like, I feel really strongly about it. Well, like, did you... Yeah, see, because I... Uh, <laughs> I didn't get that many, like, uh, I didn't read that many DC books. I actually picked up several last week, and of course I wasn't in the store this week. 
but I read Action Comics 20 and The Movement number one today. Oh, I read The Movement. Yes. I, I, I can tell you my movement story, which you might find amusing. I bought The, mu- uh, the Movement last week. Yes. And I read it. Uh, and uh, Alison Candy of Twitter and occasionally comments here. Mm-hmm. Uh, emailed me and she was like I, have you read the movement like is this a complete misfire is it me and I swear to god this was like two days after I read it I could not remember what happened to that comic oh my god I, told, I was mm-hmm. like yeah I know I read it I, I remember paying for it I remember mm-hmm. reading it uh, yeah I can't remember and so I read it again today and I think I realized why I can't remember it's there's nothing to it well, see, this is interesting. I thought there was nothing to it, and what there wasn't of it was really badly done. Like, I was actually kind of surprised by how much between the cover and the kind of the pitch, I'm like, this is, I'm like, I, I'm ready for this book. I want to read this book. And I don't, um, I'm not really such a big fan of Gail Simone. Like, I, there's stuff of hers that I've liked, uh, but just for a general, um, uh, after after indirect interactions with her, I'm just basically like I kind of don't want to support her. So, but then I was like, ah, this has been years and years. Stop being such a crabby old man. Pick up the book. Um, and it sort of reminded me of the first issue of Batgirl, the new Fifty Two, which I don't remember how I ended up reading, but uh, you probably bought it. Did I? I probably did. I I would hate to think that I did and then for well, you know was kind of like oh because this time I was really like oh but do I want to support Simone blah blah blah. I just thought it was really bad. Like I thought it was just the art was bad at various. Oh, I actually liked the art. Really, I thought the storytelling yeah. was just mm, not there. Like I think I think Freddie Williams has had issues with storytelling before. Mm-hmm. What I really liked about this was it was his line work. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, his his um his page design was essentially the same as it's been, mm-hmm. you know, since I first saw his work back in Miracle Man, mm-hmm. and not Miracle Man, Mister Miracle. Um, but th- his finish I found really interesting. Mm. interesting. I I think I think that if I I mean I think he's a really interesting artist in that if you look at his finish in this and his finishes in Captain Atom, mm-hmm. uh, and his finishes in Mister Miracle, or even his finishes in the Channel Fifty Two stuff at the back of every book. <coughs> uh huh. Like he, he's a, he's a very versatile artist when it comes to finishing, but mm-hmm. he's not an incredibly versatile artist when it comes to the, what's underneath that. I guess if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's true. There were there were a few parts here where actually, um, it's kind of a shame because <laughs> because the cover has one style and and I think that was the style of the book that I wanted to read, uh, and I'm not sure. Well, yeah, it's, 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 it's Amanda Connor. Yeah, so I was like, oh, man. Um, and then jumping in on the book, which has a very, uh, I don't know, you know, just like a really interesting, scratchy embellishment style. Uh, I, I was like, okay, I'm not as down with the style, but I'll probably be okay with this book with it and then as things went on I mean there's just really weird I I, I don't think any maybe no artist could pull off a page where police officers kick in the door of a church and then suddenly a a mouse turns up with a read me label on its back yes there's definitely some interesting staging but no there's but there's a lot of problems that he has made that you can't lay uh, Gail's Mm -hmm. either Mm-hmm. Because the the end of the book, 
mm-hmm. um, where the policeman goes back into the church and yes. the reveal is supposed to be he turns around and everyone's wearing the mask. Mm-hmm. That's really awkwardly done. That's very awkwardly handled. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's just the appearances of the characters. It's just, it's, it's, that was not strong. And then, and then literally some of the dialogue was just terrible. I mean, just real weird, terrible, bullshitty bullshit. Um, so between that and Action Comics number 20, I was just like, oh, DC, what is going on with you? You know, and who that's, but that's the weird thing. So, yeah, I read this big staff comics and I was basically like, wow, the, you know, DC's line is much stronger than I thought. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, well, apart from they've really kind of fucked up Superman. Right, right. Yeah, that that was the 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 sort of thing I had in my brain. I was like, "Yeah, but Superman is a mess." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I don't like. How do you fix Superman? Short of just being like, "Okay, everyone, do over." Right. I don't. Well, I think their 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 idea of a fix is like give Jim, it all to Scott Lobdell. Yeah. Well, Scott Lobdell, and then just do, Scott Snyder. Yeah, Scott Snyder and Jim Lee, and then and then push for it. And I'm just like, I don't. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that'll that'll turn the trick. But I don't. Uh, you know, the thing is, is I was actually reading uh, like Grant Morrison stuff. Like, if someone could just, you know, there's so many people who want to do Grant Morrison. I'm like, just a slightly watered down version of what he was doing would have worked fine for me. You know, like I really, you know, but of course I understand from where he was going, it was kind of in a different wheelhouse from where they want the rest of this stuff to go. But yeah, reading this this second issue of Action Comics, I'm just like, I mean, it was just a mess, and the ideas were bad, and then the backup story by Scott Lobdell was even, I don't know, as bad. I suppose it's just, I mean, I I, I, I kind of stayed away. Mm-hmm. I had this moment of, I don't think I would like this, mm-hmm. and you're you're totally making me feel better about that feeling. Oh yeah, no, I think so. I mean, this is one of those weird, like. I'm not very good at hopping off books and I need to get better at it, but, you know, it's like I'm, like, sort of vaguely paying attention. So half of these action books, I think I probably had a chance to, like, you know, like I was like, okay, well, I'll stay on with Andy Diggle and see what's going on. You know, give it a, give it an issue or two because I, I, I believe, kind of believe in that, I suppose, generally. Yeah, but, yeah. But I found myself just like in in that first issue. I was like, okay, this is cl- like Andy Dickel was doing close enough to a Superman book that I would have wanted to read. Like he very very clearly was like, okay, here's my first issue. I'm going to tell you what's great about Lois Lane. I'm going to tell you what's great about you know Clark Kent, and I'm going to tell you what's great about Superman. And you know, then this issue. I mean, admittedly, it it suffers from I'm sure all sorts of crazy technical problems. But it was just like, skibbity blah blah, you know, like, I, I get that Tony Daniel, I mean, and this is the worst part, is Tony Daniel, I can see his hand in it, no pun intended, considering there is basically, is like Superman versus, like, you know, basically zombies, you know, like creatures that have been infected by a quasi-Kryptonian virus or something, and I'm like, yeah, Superman versus zombies, let's do that. 
You know what I mean? Like, totally a good idea, Tony Daniel. And then, of course, the the way that it's handled over the course of four pages, I'm like, this is the most terrible. I mean, as you may remember, I like Tony Daniel on Detective Comics because the comics were insane. Um, Mm -hmm. And at this stage, I'm willing to accept that. I'm like, sure, seriously, crazy crap Superman. Because Superman does this thing where it's like, here are people who are infected as zombies as these weird Kryptonian zombie types and Superman basically opens up a hole in the earth, throws them all down and seals them in it. And then there's like some caption that's like, oh, they'll probably be fine down there thanks to the disease giving them strength and invulnerability. And I'm like, you just sealed innocent, diseased people up in a... Yeah, ser- seriously? Yeah. Seriously, Superman? That's what you did? <laughs> that was your idea? Yeah, exactly. I was like, huh... Wow. So again, there's kind of that, just that idea of like, of Tony Daniel sort of, he thinks like an artist first and then tries to come up with his justification second. And so I'm like, okay, you've got Superman versus zombies. And then, uh, you know, the second page, I'm like, oh, well, you see why that's a bad idea. Like that's a, you know, could be, a, I mean, it could be a perfect idea because Superman can't harm the innocent, but the innocent now are like super zombies. And I'm like, you get the zombie thing in there. You know what I mean? You get something that's like a contrast of a, like our weird new values and Superman sort of standing for sort of greater values. But then... I, I love that that's where you, you're going with that as opposed to just, this is a bad idea. Because <laughs> it's a bad idea, Jeff. Dude, no. I mean, yes, absolutely. But it's bad in a way that could be absurd. And frankly, it's if you bad, can pull it's it bad off... In a way that if you, yeah, it's bad in a way that if you had nuts, you could pull off. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. it's but it's I guess what I'm saying is it's bad in a way that you would need someone who is not going to be doing Superman for DC Comics right now to pull off. Yeah, well that's probably true. Because otherwise it turns into bandwagon jumping. You yeah. know, aren't aren't people watching The Walking Dead? This could be awesome. Well, Maybe it'll be hot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With two T's, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, but of course, I'm I'm sort of, I don't know, I'm weirdly, that's something that as I get older, I have more of a certain, um, uh, I don't know, fondness for? Yeah, like it's moved from tolerance into fondness. Like, I'm like, you know, comics, well, no, we're jumping in, on in bandwagons. Theory, you know, in theory, I, I agree with you. I mean, mm-hmm. God knows when 2008 did it, when I was a kid, it was the greatest thing ever. Right. You know, dinosaurs are big. What? Why don't we do cloned dinosaurs? Yes. <laughs> exactly. You know? exactly. Someone saw Jaws. What about a robotic shark? Yes, please. Right. But I don't know. I just... I guess my problem is these days it's not done with enough shamelessness. Well, I think that's it. I, I, I think I, you have to be Bob Haney. I think you have to com- fully commit to the bit. Right. Well, yes, and I and I don't think that there's enough of a of a full commitment. Anyway, so DC, it's interesting that you were saying like I feel up about it because I just read like you're like because I feel down about it. I feel kind of down, yeah. Between yeah, the movement, give me a week, give mm-hmm. me a week, and I'm sure I'll feel down again. I then again, like in general, I'm feeling up. I read uh, the Avengers Assemble 15 AU uh, oh. yesterday, hmm. which is Al Ewing's second Age of Ultron tie-in. Yes, it left me feeling up about Age of Ultron. And I know that the only way I'm going to keep feeling up about Age of Ultron is to never read another Age of Ultron comic. <laughs> but I swear to God, it was so good, Jeff. Huh. It was so good. Interesting. Is it... it was an Age of Ultron story that basically kills off all of its main characters and yet still feels optimistic. Wow. Well, that's that's kind of an impressive... impressive it it is. Um, Captain Marvel is on vacation in Britain. Mm-hmm. 
Age of, and like Ultron has attacked, mm-hmm. and so you have Captain Britain, uh, uh, Excalibur, who is uh, Pfizer from the old Paul Cornell Captain Britain MI13 series, mm-hmm. uh, and and a couple of new characters. Oh, and the Black Knight who can't do anything because if he uses his sword again, he's going to turn into a raving lunatic who's worse than Ultron. <laughs> um, and they have to fight back against Ultron. Mm-hmm. In the part part of the, in the end of the story. Captain Marvel and Captain Britain are both dead. Mm-hmm. And somehow it feels upbeat. Oh, and Black Knight still can't do anything because he'll turn into a monster. And it still feels upbeat. Wow. Huh. That's uh, that's an impressive achievement because I can't even imagine how that could work. Oh, it's 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 great. Uh, it's re- Again, Al Ewing. Let's just call this the Al Ewing Appreciation <laughs> We should. Because seriously. <laughs> did, you, did you read the, the fictional one? Uh, not yet, no. I oh, got it. I only I, got it like I, a day or two ago. I, all I would say again, listeners, is the Al Ewing Appreciation Podcast, the fictional man, and I've said this on Twitter, and I've said this somewhere else, I think my blog, um, Yes, is 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 the best novel I've read in the, the longest time. It totally hits all the, the parts for me that I got when reading Philip K. Dick when I was younger, when I got reading Terry Southern, when I got when reading Howard the Duck by Steve Gerber, that I got from reading, you know, really early Kurt Vonnegut, even the ways in which it goes wrong wow, resonated really positive with me. Mm-hmm. For example, I don't think that a lot of... I, I got frustrated by the way that a lot of really interesting ideas were introduced and not really developed. There's a, there's a particular character who basically comes in as an agent of change and doesn't have any agency in and of themselves mm-hmm. that I get that I got really frustrated with because it's almost the character is almost a plot device as opposed to a character if that makes sense oh yeah um, but even that for me was like well it's kind of like Harley Vonnegut where you know you have these really fascinating ideas but they're not really developed enough mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so yeah like even when even when it quote goes wrong unquote <laughs> it worked for me I it, it totally like I I, uh, I told you an email I started reading, basically thinking, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll start reading this and then I might finish it, you know, when I go away next weekend. Right. And I read it the entire night. Wow. Like, I read it until it was done. I was just like, yeah, I'm just going to keep reading this. Wow. That's amazing. It, yeah. The Fictional Man is available digitally, people, and also online. Uh, it's published by, oh God, who's it published by? It's it's Rebellion's prose publishing arm, but I can't remember the name of them. Solaris, I think, is their name. That That makes sense, I think. Um, but it's great. It's highly, highly, highly recommended. If, like me, you grew up reading Philip K. Dick or Vonnegut, mm-hmm. or um, it's really, really highly recommended. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I'm very much after hearing you talk about it. It's like, okay, well, I got to scam myself a copy. So, um, hopefully, we'll get a chance to discuss it again. Uh, when I've read it, yeah, well, well, like next week when you, or not two weeks from now when you've read it and hate it, and you'll be like, oh, you're totally wrong." <laughs> exactly, Graham. No, yes, everything you said was incorrect. <laughs> hey, I don't suppose you got a chance to pick up the uh, Copra Compendium, did you? I have not. Uh, that that actually is a book that I'm hoping to take with me on my trip. Oh my goodness, yes. I mean, yeah. I imagine if you're up there, they'll have they'll have copies at Floating World, I guess. Um, I, I'd be really surprised if they have copies of Floating World or Cosmic Monkey. I, okay. I think there's going to be. I think I think I will have a choice of where to get them. 
Yes, I would think so. I would think so. I could see where maybe you wouldn't have it at Excalibur, but uh, but yeah, I was really uh, various whatnots, including uh, Cass Sherman, have been suggesting that we pick it up for a while. Uh, and I had picked up issues four and five by the time I got around to it because, weirdly enough, um, Hibbs was didn't have wasn't stuck in it. I don't think. Uh, but um, but over Leaf over at Mission Comics actually had copies of issues four and five. So I've got those in my future. But Graham, I really am looking forward to to talking with you about it and also hearing your reactions. Just because there's just it's. It's a very, very, I don't know, it's a very similar thing, I guess, in the sense of, like, here are all these things that I love that it reminds me of, and maybe even takes from directly, um, and also tries to, to grow and reinvent them, I think, you know. Oh, I, I'm really looking forward to it. I've heard a lot of people say amazing things about it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely on my to-do list. It's just not on my have-done list. Right, right. I quite understand. Um, and then... hey, can, I, can I talk about two other things I've read that no one else has read? Or that's not true. Many other people have read. You have not read, and they are not officially released yet. Ah, yes, please. Uh, one is Julio's Day, the Gilbert Hernandez oh, yeah, right. uh, collection, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which I got because... Which I think will appear after this podcast goes live, even right. though we've already done it, if that makes sense. Yes. The weird intricacies of internet timing. Um, but that was really weird. I, I think you know that I am uh, hot and cold, training towards cold on Gilbert Hernandez's work. Yes. Um, I, I, I have a lot of problems with Gilbert Hernandez's work, mostly because I was introduced to do it, to it through the, shall we say, shittier stuff. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, he sort of, did, he did Palomar, and then he got into his very pulp period, mm-hmm. where he's like, you know, I'm just going to indulge myself. Here's some big tits, and here's, like, horror. Here's body horror and big tits. Right. Go. Right. Um, and that stuff just doesn't resonate with me at all. Mm-hmm. And so I, I kind of feel like I was constantly fighting that when I read other things. Mm-hmm. I still haven't read Palomar. This is the closest thing to Palomar I've read. And it's basically convinced me that I need to read Palomar. I mm-hmm. liked it enough that I was like, oh, there's more to this guy than I previously thought. While at the same time, it is an exceptionally uneven book. Oh, really? Well, <laughs> it is It is cr- totally all over the fucking shop. Occasionally mm-hmm. on the same page, totally all over the fucking shop. Yeah. Um. But fascinating because of that. It is incredibly ambitious. Uh, not incredibly successful mm-hmm. at the ambition. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's what, I think it's one of those things where he knows what he wants to do, but he doesn't communicate it properly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was one of those things that I ended up really loving, even, like after the fact. Mm-hmm. The more I think about it, the more I like it. Huh. Um, so yes, yeah, so I got it on the I got it on the Monday. I read it on the Monday night. We did our reviews on the Tuesday, and I'm completely ambivalent about it in the reviews. And I keep going back to it. So I've had a couple more days to basically go back to it and be like, "Yeah, I can see what he's doing here. Yeah, it's not successful, but it's, it, there's something there that yeah, I'm kind of fascinated by it." Wow. Um, so yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you check in two weeks from now, and I'm like, "It's a masterpiece, <laughs> but a flawed masterpiece." <laughs> Uh, in the outright masterpiece range, however, mm-hmm. uh, first second sent me a copy of the Invincible Haggard West issue one hundred and one, mm-hmm. which is the thirty-two page preview of Battling Boy by Paul Pope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, it's basically presented as the final issue of a comic called The Invincible Hagrid West. Yes. Uh, and I think it's the first 23, 24 pages from the from Battling by itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it made me it desperately made me want to read Battling Boy mm-hmm. but it also just made me like why can't Paul Pope do comics like this all the time why why don't these comics exist all the time yeah yeah it's just it's great it's Paul Pope doing superheroes um, as as Paul Pope if that mm-hmm. makes sense mm-hmm. and it's just it's lovely and it's really it's much tighter than I think I'm used to from Pope I think I'm used to Pope being sloppier mm-hmm. uh, Visually and writing-wise, hmm. uh, I, I think that's sort of intentional on his part. I don't mm-hmm. know if he's typed up because this is theoretically a book for kids mm-hmm. or not. Mm-hmm. Although, it's this is released is a hellishly dark book for kids. Really? Well, the entire plot of of the Invincible Hagrid West is here's the superhero who gets blown up by his enemies. Mm-hmm. The end. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, we'll see. So, yeah, where that goes if that's just the first twenty some odd pages. But, huh, that's interesting. Uh, but it's it's gorgeous. It mm-hmm. is beautiful. There is uh, one double page spread in particular that is just lovely, lovely, lovely. So Haggard West is essentially, you know, a super cool superhero who relies on technology. So he's got a jetpack. He's got laser guns. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a panel where he is facing off against six bad guys mm-hmm. and he they're holding a hostage and he has to rescue the hostage mm-hmm. and so he throws a smoke bomb in and double page spread is him zooming from the right to the left of the page through the smoke while grabbing the hostage mm. and it's just gorgeous mm. Mm-hmm. it is so so nice mm-hmm. um, this comic comes out I believe in July Mm-hmm. Uh, it's two nineteen. It's it's thirty two pages. Uh, you get the actually it must be at least thirty pages of story. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get the the guns his gun schematic at the last page. <laughs> uh, it's it's just great. It's oh, really really good. So yeah, two ninety nine, and I think it's July. Wow, wow. I'm envious. I I would I'd really love to see that. Completely recommended. It's mm-hmm. really hmm. Interesting. That sounds, uh, like I said, that's something I would love to see. And I, I don't know, I just... Ah, Pope. I mean, he's a really interesting figure, you know? I mean, just in terms of the fact... I'm so glad he's continuing to do stuff, but, like, I don't know, I look at art and art online and even uh, even just comic art that I like, and I feel like Pope has just been, like, astoundingly influential, you know? He really has. And... and- I'd almost like suddenly influential if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I feel like he wasn't really present as an influence for many years and then all of a sudden you've got all these guys who are clearly learning from him. Right. Right. Well, I guess I, that could be. It's, I suppose that's true. I sort of feel like those are people whose work has, I don't know, has also been around for a while and or, you know, it took them, you know, took them five or it ten years. It took them a while to become yeah. popular. Yeah, yeah, to be popular or to to where their stuff really gets out there. So, um, Graham, you're breaking up a wee tad. Maybe uh, we should jump and then come back for our, our little final 45 minute sprint. We'll both uh, let's, reboot. Let's do that. Okay, let's do that. 
That's Listeners, it. we'll be back in a second. And I, I, do we still have comics to talk about? You haven't said, but you've read, Jeff. Uh, yeah, I've got Let's some. Let's Jeff read. Yeah, I'll have some things to talk about, you know, some Kirby, uh, some Michael DeForge, some Five Ghosts. I think it'll it, it'll be a hoot. We'll be back for hoot, listeners. <laughs> we'll be back in a hoot for a hoot. Very nice. Oh my god, I can't believe I talked over that. That is that is, uh, and by I say nice, I mean quasi terrifying. Let's let's not be mistaken. <laughs> Sound it sounds like a, a woodsy owl slogan if he was on cocaine. But I'm willing to. I I think it's good. And on that note. <laughs> Jeff Lester. Graham McMillan. Welcome Jeff back. Jeff Lester. <laughs> it would be great to do a podcast where I just have that as a soundboard and I just sort of fake uh, talking with you and I just say that things. Would be, that would be hilarious. Be like, you can just go, Jeff Lester. Well, that then you could do a show next week when I'm not here. Yeah, that that would be, boy, everyone would love It would be great. Everyone's like, man, your guys' chemistry stronger than ever. <laughs> exactly. It's it's almost like Graham just was was right there. He sounded so much better than normal. He was much more on point. Right. So here's a story that I want to tell that I, I meant to tell last time. I'll try and make it super quick. Um, it, uh, but it's a story that hopefully will explain why I want to throw something at my in-laws. Um, and that's a good start. Yeah, you better hope your in-laws don't listen to the show. I'm I'm pretty comfortable that they don't. But oh, man, I think by the time they finish, by the time they get to the end, there they'll be like, yeah, okay. I personally would want to throw. I see this. So, um, I have two nieces, June, who's three, who's the one who is currently in the comics. I have and uh, her younger sister Ray, who is now just one, who is mainly into walking and pooping. Um, and so she just turned one. The birthday party for uh, Ray was on a um, a Saturday, which is a day that I work. So I was not able to attend the birthday party. Edie, however, did go. Now, the thing that kills me is at various points, June basically grabbed Edie and was like, read this comic book to me, read this comic book to me, etc., etc., blah, blah, blah. So there's a bunch of um, my brother-in-law and his wife, they have a bunch of other friends who are pretty much all kind of in the same demographical boat. Like, they all basically have kids who are like two or three years old. Some of them actually have their second one on the way, you know, but it's all kind of like the same realm. So a lot of kids running around of the same age, right? So, so the thing that kills me, the reason why I just, I was not here for this, Graham, but Edie told me, like, at one point, she was reading the, uh, I think it was the Batman animated uh, adventures uh, annual that I think I, I dug out of my collection and gave. She was reading that to June, right? Um, and then, at various points, like, other little girls, like two or three-year-old girls, basically came in, because it was sort of toward the end of the party, and they're kind of getting ready to go, and etc., and basically saw that Edie was reading this comic book, and 
came over and sat down next to her so that they could also take this in right so the thing that kills me is is at one point Edie was reading a superhero comic to four three-year-old girls who were all absolutely entranced and my in-laws did not take a motherfucking photo of this and I so am so pissed you know not just because that is something I want to see like it does my heart good you know knowing that that happened but also it just in this crazy like you still hear people who are like oh you know girls they're not really into comics or they don't really you know it was, I swear to god it was only a year or two ago that you people actually were it you know trolls on the net, net going like oh like girls don't like comics cuz they don't know how to read them kind of thing you know all the factors that are all like oh you know girls don't like comics because of blank and here was something that happened in real life that shows that like people are always you know kids of a certain age are always going to dig brightly colored heroes like sort of running around and and fighting bad guys you know and it just it breaks my heart that we didn't get that picture so so for what you're saying is you could be lying and we'd never know yeah, that's right. That's right. That's that's the sad part. That's the, the more I'm yeah. taking away from that story, Jeff. No, basically, it, you're lying to all of us. Yes. And so, thanks. Yeah. No. The the takeaway part is is that I'm such a demagogue that I did not care about attending this party, in for my one year old niece until people really interested in comic books were involved, and then I deeply regretted it. So that's. I have to say. When you were here in town, you told Kate and I the many things that June has said to you Mm -hmm. that I was like, we should make those catchphrases for the podcast. And I am biting my tongue so hard not to say it. Because if if I do, I know that people will just use it in the comments and then it'll become a thing. So for your own goods, Jeff... I'm not saying it. I personally think you should let them go. But I do know the comment you're thinking of, and it is perfect for this. That would be kind of the finishing blow. Yeah, if we'd actually <laughs> had like an hour to talk about uh, my misadventures with my niece, yeah, we would be in good position. Anyway. Should, so that, that's what you should do when I'm not here next week. You should just record a, a podcast of you talking about everything that June says to you. Because June, ladies and gentlemen, when Jeff and Edie were telling me about the way that Jeff spends time with his niece, I was ready to give up my seat on this podcast and let you go. First of all, June knows how to control Jeff in a way that I never could. Secondly, she she plays with Jeff by apparently throwing him to the ground and telling him he's going to jail. It's true. Which is awesome. Like, how could you not want to listen to a podcast, which is just Jeff telling you how a three-year-old throws him to the ground and tells him he's going to jail? Yeah, see, and this is it. This is one of the things that is so awesome about her. And the thing that's great is then she's like, and again, this is the other thing I find kind of heartbreaking about the state of comics, kids' comics, comics for girls that are kids' comics that are about, you know, basically superhero fistfights. Because until Wonder Woman came along, and I'm still hustling to find books for her, and the Powerpuff Girls, she basically would be like, I'm Miss Piggy! And I'm like, huh? And then she'd throw me to the floor, and because Miss Piggy, like, karate chops people. Yeah! Exactly! So she would. She would, like, go, hi yeah And, like, smack me on the head with her tiny fist. And, uh... 
God, I've never met your niece, but she's already one of my favorite people. <laughs> well, exactly. How can you not appreciate that? And how can I not like work overtime to try and uh, over enable that as much as possible? So. Um, yeah, thank you, Graham. It's probably best for the bet. You know, we'll see if there's enough requests. Maybe we can break out some of the stories with the various, uh, her various inimitable taglines because they're they are pretty awesome. Uh, so that is one of the things that I really wanted to talk about. Um, you know, separate and apart for things. It's kind of funny. You know, I also thought that we would. Did you end up seeing Iron Man three or no? I did not. I'm hoping to see it this weekend. Oh, interesting. Well, did, that was. I did. I did. And uh, people. Wait. So wait. Have you given money to to like a charity, or no. have you just given up on that? Okay. The answer is neither. Really? Uh, this is going to sound somewhat fraudulent, but I swear to God it is true. Another story that I always wanted to tell on the podcast and never got a chance to tell um, was how I went to go see Django Unchained and basically ended up getting two free movie passes out of just one movie because things went so absurdly crazily wrong but let's just say that thanks to the miracle of people overdosing on miracle medical marijuana and going into seizures in the middle of movies i had two passes for an amc theater and so Edie and i were able to go see iron man 3 without providing any money to them apart from the one what, what did you think of it uh you know i thought that iron man 3 was more or less slight but entirely entertaining, so much better than two. I mean, it probably helps that my bar was really, really super low. Um, but I also honestly thought that it had, um, it was very, to me, it was very much weirdly a Shane Black movie, you know? I, I mean, I've seen a lot of people say that. Yeah, and that's the thing that really sort of surprised me in a really good way. I mean, there's, I think Shane Black has his weaknesses, and those weaknesses actually. Uh, as his strengths did, did turn up in the movie, but I actually thought, yeah, overall, um, uh, it, it, it ended up working out really, really well. I walked out of it going, wow, that was, it was a good film. And it's kind of, again, it's this weird thing of like, then, interestingly enough, the whole Deadline.com story hit about Marvel Studios, Hollywood, and Robert Downey Jr.'s uh, contract renegotiations, and it really has been kind of a strange, um, bad aftertaste in my mouth. Like, wow, I'm really, really glad now that I did not pay for those movies. Like, well, I'm really well, okay. We we should give some background to this. Yes. On Monday or Tuesday, I think it was Tuesday. Um, Deadline.com ran a, a fairly in-depth story. Yeah. About the fact that um, not only is Robert Downey Jr. not signed for Avengers 2 mm -hmm. but other actors are also not signed uh, or many of them or, or sorry. I, I'm sorry because my understanding in rereading part of it is is because a lot of those people like for example Chris Evans and Liam Hemsworth did in fact sign but at such ridiculously absurd low ball prices that with Avengers well, that... being a larger movie than they are it's kind of people are like a lot of them are talking about renegotiating their contracts, even though their contracts are signed, and and Marvel, in theory, could could have grounds to sue them for abandoning. Well, their Marvel are already investigating suing. Yes, 
uh, and also outright threatening to replace them. Yes, exactly. Both of which, let's face it, they could do. Yes. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. look at what happened with the Hulk, look at what happened with uh, uh, James Rhodes, look what happened with yes. uh, Falindrel or Fandrel or whatever his name is from Thor, who's mm-hmm. a different actor in the second film as well. Yeah. Um, but the short version is more money is being asked for because Avengers was like the third most successful film in the history of cinema. Yes. Uh, and Marvel is refusing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Marvel is called essentially called bullies throughout the entire article. Yes. Yeah. Um, Basically, everyone to 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 under to to as Deadline would present it, every single person in Hollywood is essentially appalled at the way that Marvel is doing business. Um, which itself seems very much a mirror of the way that Marvel, because it's all being done by Ike Perlmutter, uh, is, is very much a mirror of the way that Marvel has done business in its publishing uh, in its latest iteration. He, so here are some of the things that were said in the article. Uh, apparently Marvel said that Avengers would not be profitable unless it made $1.1 billion. dollars <laughs> Which is kind of crazy. Uh, they're described as uncompromising. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marvel has created so much animosity by strong-arming and bullying on sequels already, it's counterproductive. Mm-hmm. I'm sick of Kevin Feige telling me again and again how Marvel is reinventing the movie business. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marvel apparently said, when someone asked for more money, I don't know why you're complaining when Marvel only makes successful movies. Yes! <laughs> Which is just, like, amazing! Yeah. Um... Yeah, it, it's it's amazing. So apparently Marvel is threatening to replace or sue. Right. Uh, and the other actors in the Avengers are saying, I don't care. Right. Well, and interestingly enough, the two things that... The one thing that was uh, intimated in the article that I found fascinating is the idea that Robert Downey Jr., and who knows if this is really true or not, but that the Downey is talking about coming back, not so much that he be, you know, and that he has an egregiously high contract rate, but that everyone else is essentially treated well and fairly. In other words, he's actually sticking up for the other actors in the situation um, rather than just being like, well, okay, but what's my big cut? Which I think well, is... Well, here's the thing. Yes. Robert Downey Jr. doesn't have... Like, Robert Downey Jr. made a fucking fortune off of Avengers. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. However, he didn't get it from his salary because mm-hmm. he had back-end factored in. Exactly. Because after Iron Man came out, he renegotiated his contract because he was smart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so a lot of people are saying, like, how come he gets 50 million and then the other guys only got 200,000? Right. And the real answer to that is because he got he had back-end factored in. Well, he had, and also, yes. let's face it, he's also the face of Marvel. <laughs> right. Well, but but he did one of the things that they did, and this makes a lot of sense to me, as I understand it, is is that Iron Man was big. It was, you know, the contract was renegotiated. They were trying to lock Downey down for four films, you know, as, as you know. And he, but they didn't necessarily want to pay him, like, a fuck ton per each movie. And so it seemed to me the idea that they, what seems eminently sensible to me is this idea of like we're not going to pay you much up front for each film but you do get the back end participation yeah. I'm like and and I think that that is um, how do I put it to me that's almost like creator participation you know I'm willing I pers- personally think that that's actually a pretty great way to go um, 
the thing is is that that is not necessarily the way that they are trying to treat everyone else now that they the other people are in fact arguably somewhat big now on their own and i think i want to say the other part that found, that i found really distinctly fascinating and uncomfortable especially after reading sean howe's marvel comics the untold story is sort of the extensive interview with joss whedon at the end of it of this article where he says a lot of things that strike me as very very similar to the two things that have been told to uh writers and artists at marvel during certain eras you know which is something along the lines of a there's not a lot of work and b there's not a lot of opportunities that you have to create real quality stuff of vision as you do right now at Marvel Studios. And I'm like, that does remind me of what people were being told back in Marvel during the 70s, and a lot of those people ended up being, you know, um, treated incredibly shabbily as time went on. So, well, What I found really fascinating about this piece was the part about Disney's relationship with Marvel. Yes. Because that, to me, is a worst-case scenario. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what basically comes out in the piece is Disney is scared of Ike Perlmutter. Yeah. And he can do whatever he wants because nobody actually wants to get in his way. Yeah. That yeah. is fucking terrifying. That is terrifying. Now, do you think that if John Carter of Mars had been a hit, like even a big, big hit, it would be... It would be still so much be that same situation because part of me feels that Disney is in this scope of having pumped a bunch of movie into Star Wars and into the pipeline, you know, and extended themselves. Marvel's the only thing they really have close to a super sure bet, you know. Um, after John Carter's of Mars no, lost their ability to yeah, launch I, franchises. I, I, yes, I, th- I think that's that's very much the case. I'm really curious because Marvel was bought by Disney in 2009. Mm-hmm. Pearl apparently is only attached to the company until 2014. Oh, interesting. Apparently his deal is only five years. I'm really curious to see whether that gets re-upped. Mm, mm, interesting. Well, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, it really does it sounds like them. It sounds like nobody wants to work with him. I mean, last year, there were three different lawsuits filed against him by people within Disney. Wow. That's lovely. All of them were settled, but mm-hmm. it sounds like nobody actually wants to work with them, and everyone is scared of them. Everyone's scared of them to the point where the guy who was the head of Disney basically said, "Yeah, we went to dinner, and he's great. Uh, why wouldn't I like him?" Which was really that was what he said. He didn't say I like him. He's like, "Why wouldn't I like him?" You know? And yeah. It was like, yeah. wow, yeah. Hollywood is. I'm really just. And there was that great quote by some agent rep or whatever who basically was like about Perlmutter, like. Who the fuck is this asshole? And I'm just kind of like, yeah, yeah, that's kind of because he was like this guy. It's you know this guy's like you know shrouded in secrecy, but he's essentially the number four person at like one of the biggest publicly traded companies in the world. He's the third largest stockholder of Disney. There we go. I thought it was number four, but he's number three, and he was number two before Lucas, right? Yeah. So basically, it goes: Steve Jobs Trust is number one, right? Lucas number two, Mm -hmm. and then Perlmutter. Wow. Wow. And nobody knows who he is. Right. Right. Other than just somebody who is... Um, Other than a guy who is apparently ridiculously hard to work with. Yeah. And brutal about money. So, 
Oh, so anyway, that, that I have to say that weird that did kind of cloud my um, appreciation of Iron Man three in a way, just because there is kind of a little bit of that like. But in terms of it, you know, that doesn't really. If you can separate those pieces out, and again, it helped that I was in on a free ticket. Um, I was kind of like, yeah, it's you know, it's an it's it's an it's an enjoyable movie, but. After reading that, I'm like, I'm not really sure it's worth the cost, if you know what I mean. You know? So. Well, here's a question. If you can separate that from everything that's going on, mm-hmm. could you also separate that from everything that goes on with Marvel Publishing? Well, I think I did for a long time. You know, the idea of redoing it now is sort of more difficult. I mean, and again, arguably one could say yes. The, the Marvel comics that I picked up that I've read in the last uh, few weeks um, are somewhat similar in the sense that they're pro- they were provided to me by um, you know whatnots who listen to the podcast who sent me the certificate. So I don't I don't have anything that you know. So I read them and I enjoyed them. It wasn't like <laughs> you know it's it's not like I finished reading um, uh, Superior Spider Man number nine and I'm like. That was pretty good for a comic book, tainted blood, you know, kind of thing. But I, I thought that you know, it was a good comic. I, but I'm, I, it's easier for me to feel that way when I'm not paying for it, you know. Yeah, no, totally. So as you saw on Twitter on Monday, mm-hmm. I, I wrote the thing from Comic Book Creator, the magazine, about how much money the Marvel movies have made. Yes. To date, uh, uh, and that, that was that was retweeted like six hundred odd times. Well, which be, really, really, really weird. Because you, because it wasn't just Marvel. You mentioned that that Kirby, Jack Kirby, that had creations of Jack Kirby. In that's it. what. Yeah, that's what. Yeah, that's yeah. what I meant to say. Yeah, sorry, you uh, said Marvel, and I'm like, I gotta clarify this. Six hundred times it was retweeted. Is and it, I'm trying. To, I'm trying to actually find the original tweet so I can I can get tell you the exact number as right. of recording. And you also well, you also mentioned this figure in that blog at Newsarama thing. So yeah, but uh, that but that was like that was that was back when it was four hundred. Oh my god! Is, um, that, is it safe to say that's the most retweeted it's you've ever been? Oh, oh, by far six hundred forty-five retweets. And I can also tell you just like because you and I are wonks like this, mm-hmm. it exploded after Neil Gaiman retweeted it. Ah, of course like, it did. Like, it went crazy after Neil Gaiman retweeted it. Um, and that was also when the signal started. So my tweet was, according to comic book creator, the total gross of movies created or co-created by Jack Kirby as of February 2013 was $7,310,655,909. Mm-hmm. Fascinatingly, after Gaiman retweeted it, the signal started getting weird. So I had lots of people going back going, he must be so rich. <laughs> uh, I was kind of like, well, he's dead. And yes. he didn't get any of that money. Yeah. Um, but that's, I don't know, like with all the Iron Man stuff going on and then that happening, it's mm-hmm. like, that's just weird, you know? Anyway, the, but what I also said in blog at Newsarama when I followed up the next day was the Alex Ross quote about Siegel and Schuster being the first sin of comics, yes. but Jack Kirby's treatment at Marvel being the greatest sin. Mm, yeah. I really like that line. That is a great Cause, line. Because his, his argument is essentially this. Siegel and Schuster were completely screwed. They mm-hmm. were treated terribly. But they created one character. Yeah. Kirby created, as he as Ross put it, the other half of the comics industry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. 
Um, yeah, no, that is a nice quote. And it's interesting because I haven't been, I've been just running around way too busy over the last day or two. So I don't know if any of that kept uh, momentum as kind of a discussion fodder or if it's just sort of no. like faded. Into no, and, the and also it didn't get any comments on, on blog app, which was really unusual. Wow. Really? Yeah, I, I, didn't even get, I didn't even get like hate comments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, which I was, I was expecting that. I was expecting uh, certain Marvel entities to tweet at me, and I didn't get either. Interesting. Interesting. Well, uh, I think that's. I think a. I think I, it. It's my theory, and I could be wrong. Is it sometimes feels like the stuff that is the most pertinent ends up being the stuff that's like the least talked about. You know. Well, yeah, yeah. So I should also recommend, by the way, that the. I got this information from the comic book creator, the first issue of comic book creator, which is the new version of comic book artist. Uh, tomorrow's issue. Mm-hmm. The first issue is available digitally now. And the story has the great title of if Kirby is King, why haven't Jack's heirs made one measly thin dime out of the billions of dollars generated by his creations in Hollywood motion pictures. That's actually the name of the story. <laughs> God bless. That's great. Is that is that sold digitally through the Tomorrow site? Is that where you picked it up, or is there other places? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. It's it's available uh, through the Tomorrow site. It's I think it's four dollars for. It's like 120 pages. Oh, good lord! Well, I was thinking of picking it up. Sounds like I will most definitely pick it up. Um, yeah, it's good stuff in there. It's, they've got that. They've got uh, an interview with Ross. They've got an interview with Jack uh, Music. Uh, they've got an interview with the guy who did my friend Jeffrey Dahmer. Oh yeah, Durf. Yes. Uh, what else? They have they have a conversation between uh, Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that it? Hmm. That's pretty much it. And they've got some shorter pieces. Right. Right. Something about Les Daniels. Uh, yeah, it's good. Interesting. It's worth. It's well worth it. I was a big fan of comic book artists when it ran, so right. I'm glad. To, I'm glad to see it essentially back with a slightly different name. Right. Right. Um, one thing that I would love to talk about, actually, uh, as a segue, that is something that I read, although more last week than this week, is the Jack Kirby Omnibus Volume Two, uh, which has an introduction by John. Superpowers. Hart, by the way. Yes. Um, Superpowers. Although. Yeah great comic. <laughs> oh my god, Graham. I mean, one thing that's sort of frustrating about this is they have a ton of... They have they have a good... Like, the first mm, 120 pages is not stuff that I'm super excited about. Because it's, it's like old black magic stories. Like, they, they literally took the black magic reprints from the 70s and are like here they are and then you can look at them and it's like these are clearly from the 50s and 40s but this issue this volume also has the um, three first issue specials that he did Atlas the Great Manhunter and the Dingbats of Danger Street I didn't realize this like somehow we missed this which was amazing because you know my brothers and I collected the comic but I didn't realize that he drew an issue of Richard Dragon Kung Fu Fighter um, yeah, written by Denny O'Neill, right? Written by Denny O'Neill, yeah, exactly. Uh, and then there was Cobra Number 1. Um, and then, weirdly enough, I guess the other issues were reprints, but it's got Sandman Number 1, cover art for the Sandman issues 2 and 3, and then the stories from the Sandman 4, 5, and 6, um, <laughs> along with the Seal Men's War on Santa Claus. Did you know about this story? 
No, but then I think you have just made that book a must-buy for me. Yeah, I was going to say, like, when I was looking through this and I still haven't read it, it is a, an issue of The Sandman where he has to rescue Santa oh, wait, Claus no, from the no, attack I of the Seamen. I, I do know this because at some point I was Googling Jack Kirby Santa Claus and I found god. it. Oh my god, yeah. So the story is there and I'm like, oh, this is so... I mean... How could it not be more Graham, you know? Um, and the thing that's kind of interesting about this volume is is um, I've, I definitely have gone a long, long way down the path of, of a uh, as Jack Kirby fan, to the point where, like, seeing his later work where he's not writing it is not as interesting to me. It is... I want to say that... Oh, and speaking of which, oh, my God. So when I was digging around for comic books for June out in my storage space... I found issues 2 through 10 of 2001 of Space Odyssey that I had had tucked away in a box somewhere, and I dragged that stuff out. I've barely had a chance to attack it, but I read that stunning two-piece, um, two-part story of Harvey Norton in Comic Town, and that yes! first yeah. thing, holy fuck, you had mentioned it before. But I really want to discuss that and the conclusion of the first Superpowers miniseries made such a fascinating impression on me, you know? The, okay, so the first Superpowers miniseries is written by Kirby and drawn by Adrian Gonzalez. And Adrian Gonzalez, I think, is completely underrated as an artist. I really love his art for that series. Mm-hmm. I think he's great, especially mm-hmm. when he inks himself and I think the fourth issue. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's, it's, kind of, uh, it's kind of a generic and identical. Right. Until you get to the last issue. And the last issue is written and drawn by Kirby. Yes. To be fair, and, just and to jump so in Kirby. on your memory, I just wanna I just wanna point out, interestingly enough, Kirby did the plot. Joey, oh that's right, and Joey Cav- Cavallari does the uh, script, right? Exactly. So it's worth pointing out that, that the story's got weird Kirby S touches all throughout the first five issues, but it doesn't really feel like Kirby. And then in the last issue, where Kirby is not only drawing it but writing it, does it really become like this kind of just holy shit kind of thing? I think it it's weird because I don't know about you, but I remember when I read it for the first time, I was like, "This is kind of the holy grail for me of Kirby superhero comics." Yeah. There's something about this issue in particular mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that makes me wish that Kirby had somehow just been given the keys to the DC Universe and they said, just do whatever you want. Right. Because yeah. it's so weird. It's mm-hmm. just so weird. Yeah, yeah. For people who are kind of interested in um, Kirby and hearing us talk about Kirby and even talking about like Grant Morrison, because I honestly, this last issue... Of... Oh, it is Rock of Ages. It yeah. is this JLA run. It introduces the Whirlagog. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The Whirlagog, which is just uh like what? Um but is a a fucking phenomenal issue. And and the thing is that I think is interesting is is the other stuff uh, it it's followed up with a second um miniseries, as you know, Graham. Uh, where Kirby draws it and it seems to me has a very strong hand in plotting it as well. Uh, I can actually tell you he didn't. It's interesting. That's funny because I, I, I run hot and cold on it uh, because part of me is like, I could see, like, it's so filled with, like, Kirby-esque ideas, especially, like, that issue where it's like they're thrown back in time and they're fighting, like, these, you know, 
aliens that end up becoming the heads of Easter Island, you know, yes, which is which just is so great. Right? I mean, it's just such. I mean, that's such a Kirby thing. But the final issue of Superpowers. I mean, first off, I really like the way that he draws the various. DC heroes, you know, frankly, they all look good. like it's interesting. Like Green Lantern, Superman, and uh, Batman all look fantastic to me. Uh, it's really he, and, he does an he does an amazingly good Batman, an amazingly good Robin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. His Robin is just like they're like just surprisingly, surprisingly great. Um, but I don't know if you noticed. Like, have you reread that issue, that last issue, uh, um, Graham, recently, anytime soon? Uh, I reread it a few months ago. Okay, so maybe you noticed this thing, but the thing that I one of the things that I so truly love about Kirby's issue is you've had all these issues leading up to it. Well, first off, the fact that the story is called Spaceship Earth, and in the middle it says "We're all on it," which yeah, I Spaceship just... Earth. Open brackets, we're all on it! Exclamation point. Oh my god, it's so good. And it's just, you really do see why um, why Al Ewing just continues to have a field day in Zombo with Kirby speak. But um, is, you af- after having four issues that are the, the DC supervillains being given super, like, almost nearly omniscient powers through hen- henchmen of Darkseid... Um, trapping and confining and and toying with the DC uh, superheroes who manage to figure out ways out of the various problems. Um, You have the fifth issue, which is the finale where Darkseid has his pieces in place, and he essentially has the parademons invade Earth, uh, more or less every angle of Earth all at once. Um, The thing that struck me about this story is is that it is an anti superhero story. I don't know. Did you did you really pick up on that? You mean Kirby's final issue or the final issue of the following series? No, the final the final issue of this first miniseries, the one that Kirby writes and draws, is it, it, the fact that the superheroes are kind of removed from the entire action for the whole thing and and are really passive throughout the whole thing as well. Yeah, they're really... All, all the way through to the last page, the last page of the first Superpowers series yes. is so hilarious to me mm-hmm. because it ends up with was it Wonder Woman saying, how do we get home? And then someone else is like, we are home! The yes, end. <laughs> the end. Exactly, exactly. And um, Yeah, but but yeah, they're incredibly passive throughout that entire issue. Well, they, 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 the superheroes do nothing. Yeah, the superheroes do nothing. And there's that brilliant... The page that really started... Where my mind started getting blown is you have the... Um, basically, like, the heroes are in place. Darkseid basically has said, all forces, the time is ripe to attack. And then beautiful shots of his armies, like, appearing through the boom tubes, like, throwing shit and shooting things, huge shots of, you know, quasi-howitzer-type things being fired with a character yelling, move out, move out, put a hole in this town and push on. And the very next page, the top panel, is this... The the the, the um, caption panel is, of course, the computer city of Metropolis is deeply perturbed by this display of mass violence in the year 80,000 A.D. After untold millennia of uninterrupted peace, it is embarrassing to call an assault monitor into service once again. And the assault monitor that 
flies up out of the sidewalk is basically a Jim Woodring wet dream. Like, it is the most amazing piece of purple and blue. It's like a super building that is essentially an attack. You know, it is an assault monitor. It's this enormous thing that you see flying off the city block, and it is a stunner. And then you follow it, and essentially you see Darkseid's enemies die, like Darkseid's armies die from that they basically fly back in time, turn into savages, and slaughter one another. There's an amazing panel where the second army basically ends up um, submerging in the murky waters near ancient Atlantis. And so you just see... So it's basically just pages after page after page of dying soldiers and no superheroes anywhere in sight. It really reminds me of that, it's sort of that end of... Silver Star in a way where it's suddenly like death is coming and and Kirby's like yeah this is like this is death like he totally sets up this whole superhero conflict and then he basically shows people going into war and dying in just shitty miserable ways and even though there's a patina of super science in it it's exactly entirely the way that armies die more or less every day you know what I mean they just they're killed they they're they're uh, they're destroyed by the elements you know they just come up against a force that they don't even understand that is superior technology that just annihilates them and then afterward the thing that drives me crazy is is that metron um who looks a lot like jerry seinfeld in one of these panels which is kind of interesting uh he says as dark side sought his victory on earth we've won it here Still, this tragedy could have been avoided were Darkseid and myself to simply cease to exist. It seems that we, who now clash for power, offer poor role models for those who may one day find a comparable strength within themselves. And I'm just like... To me, that's kind of this weird... Because Metron's saying that about him and Darkseid, but you the shot where he's saying it is focusing on shots of Superman, Wonder Woman, and the Penguin is the focus in that panel. And so Kirby, like Kirby is the world's best, I'm convinced, guy to bite a hand that feeds him because it's a superlative comic. It gives you everything that you want, but buried in the details of it is he's like, you know what? These are bad. These are the, apparently we are poor role models and he doesn't mean he means the superheroes superheroes and supervillains as a form of conflict is something that Kirby is basically convinced uh, kind of is is not necessarily that great an influence and is one that needs to be outgrown if 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 humanity's really going to change and yeah. that's stunning to be buried in the middle of a comic book about toys you know like that yeah but but also mind. it's undoing the previous four issues. If that yes, makes sense. no, absolutely. The previous four issues are like superheroes. They're great. Look, they're fighting supervillains. That's great. Look, we've given all these guys big powers, but the superheroes can still do it because they're they're goods. Yes. And then you have the last issue, and Met or Kirby says through Metron essentially, all of this like you can't. Mm-hmm. Both sides create the conflict. Yes. Yeah. Both sides. Create, if, if you exactly. want, if you want to get rid of the conflict, you have to look beyond this. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And it even gives you the future where where the future metropolis is embarrassed by conflict. Yeah. Yeah, because it's such a it's such a 
concept that is beneath humanity by that point. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Kirby, Kirby. Kirby was an amazing optimist, mm-hmm. despite everything that he had seen. Yeah, does that make sense? No, absolutely. Well, he, because he, you're right. He kills off the power demons in essentially, I mean, in a incredibly brutal way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and you actually get this in his losers as well. I think his losers are, is also full of. Uh, uh, a lack of romanticism for war, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not even a, a realism, but mm-hmm. but def- definitely a a refusal to engage in the romantic ide- ideal of war. Yes, um, and superpowers weirdly has the same thing, which mm-hmm. is it essentially ends with, you know, maybe you've enjoyed this, but you shouldn't because right, all you're doing is repeating the same conflict over and over again, and you should be better than this. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a stunner. That's just a... I mean, it was shocking to, to see it. It was shocking to see him basically... Because he really does simultaneously finesse everything that was introduced in the previous four issues plays a part in the fifth. Like, all the stuff in the de-evolutionizer and the time travely thing and all that stuff. Um, but then he actually twists it all in on itself to create this 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 last issue really beautiful repost to the rest of the series um and similarly to see uh the 2001 a space odyssey story that starts off with a superhero that you know running around in comicville and it turns out later is basically you know a fanboy trying to have superhero dreams and halfway through you know, thanks to thanks to the intervention of the monolith, he's like, "Look, you've got to," you know, is told to basically go out in space and try and try and just live these dreams out here where they're more appropriate. Um, and oh my! And to me, it's kind of like it's it's a really bracing kind of two part issue. It would be to me, it'd be almost better in the first part because the second part kind of goes into this whole like, you know, it's like the the way that the character redeems himself. Um, by basically being as absolutely, you know, as heroic as he's trying to be as a made-up superhero in the first issue, but, like, it's really, it's a very facile kind of, you know, um, analogy. But holy shit, the first issue where he's he's a superhero called the White Zero, I fucking adore that name. Like, with the big zero on his head, and it's clearly a Kirby pastiche of Captain America with the wings and the thing on his head. I'm like, fucking shit, man. Kirby was amazing. I I just adore that man, you know? Holy crap. It has to be said, the fact that 2001 is not in print and probably is never going to come into print is the saddest thing. It's a heartbreak. Because it's... Kirby at his Kirbyist. Yes, exactly. It, 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 there is stuff in there. I mean, it, it kind of gets kind of crazy towards the end, especially when Mister Machine comes into it. Yes. Um, but there's stuff in there that is just mind bending. Yeah. I mean, truly amazing, cosmic in the cosmic in a way that most comics aren't cosmic if that makes sense like actually genuinely thinking about the big things as opposed to they're in space right right it's a talking raccoon but he's not really a raccoon he's an alien who looks like a raccoon you know (laughs) instead of that like kirby is genuinely thinking 
you know, are we going to evolve? Are we doomed to just repeat the same mistakes all over again? Right. What happens if you give someone evolution? That's what I really love about it. He essentially looks for alternate answers to the the, the original story. Right. What happens if you expose someone to to truth? Mm-hmm. To, to something that can give you genuine truth and something that can evolve you if you're willing to be evolved. Mm-hmm. And this is this is what happens to these particular characters. And he's weirdly damning about it mm-hmm. consistently. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the point of the series is fairly consistently. We're not ready. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, by by the time that... Exactly. That it, it he... Again, in that weird, like, is he an for an optimist? He really does, in a way, sort of take some of the ideas of the movie to heart. In that, yeah, like our evolution at the beginning is forced, and then when it's time for us to make the next step, it's also forced. Like we've just barely all we've managed to do is sort of crawl ourselves from one point where we've transformed. To you know, that gives us enough ability to get to the next part where we have another transformation that makes you know barely any sense to us. But at the same time, the the parts that are gorgeous about it, oh my god! I mean, because like you said, Kirby at his Kirbyist, his design sense in that is just it's it's him at his at its you know sort of its farthest fringe, you know. So you just this there's stuff where but, he's but got... But it's still coherent. Oh, absolutely. You, it's it's you not like later stuff at. where you're mm-hmm. like, oh, like, the, it, it's Kirby on top of his game. Yeah. Yeah, so you're looking at, like, energy things in space and it is, ju- it's it's abstract, but you get it. Like, which is, you know, which is kind of supposed to be the point behind 2001 A Space Odyssey anyway. Like, his art just gets to that point where it's like, you're right at the verge of what you can comprehend, you know, and what you can intuit, um, and and yet it's just, and it's mystifying and edifying at the same time. It's just, oh my God, such good comics, you know? So, yeah, it's, it's, it's such a shame they're not in print. Yeah, yeah, it really was. Finding those things in my little storage space, I'm like, oh my God, I'm so glad I have these. I have to read them now. So wait, you said you found... Two through ten. Two through ten. Yeah. I'm so not... the entire series, apart from issue one. Yeah, exactly. And I know I have issue one. The only thing I really don't have is the treasury edition, which I know um, uh, a friend on the internet loaned to me. So I actually do have a a a, a you know a PDF of that. I I read illegitimately, but the but the ten issues, the individual comic, I do have on my own. Um, yeah, which are just amazing. The treasury, though, is also stunning to see Kirby rewrite Kubrick oh, yeah. rewriting Clark yeah 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 <laughs> it's just mind bending stuff yeah that is and and it i think i you know i posted it on twitter at the time but there were some pictures there were points where i was just taking screenshots cuz it was stunt there's points where Kirby is literally writing poetry like he's literally buried the rhymes within the captions but you can like make sense of them and stuff and it's oh god what is what a stunner you know so um it, it really is it's it's one of those things where it's it's god bless there's a few uh whatnots that i correspond with who are kind of like run the gamut between kirby i don't get it or kirby not getting paid i don't get it and it it's always like frustrating that i can never quite convince and compel 
Um, you know, but hopefully some people have gotten more out of our um, sort of foaming gibberings uh, to know to check this stuff out if you can. There's some amazing, amazing stuff out there. It's true. In the 2001, it's not in print and it's probably never going to return to print. Yeah. Do you feel okay with being like, people, try and find it online somewhere? I kind of do at this point, you know? <laughs> because, because people, try and find it online somewhere. Yeah, seriously. Or, or try and find a, if you can find cheap back issues. It, if you like Jack Kirby at all, especially if you like his Fourth World stuff, um, I I cannot recommend it highly enough. Yeah, cannot. Yeah, it it's stunning. Oh no, I really have to re-give uh, Eternals another go round. But I'm thinking that 2001 may end up. Well, we'll see. I have to I have to sit down and reread it all. But it's certainly at the the top end of of Marvel of Kirby's 70 work for Marvel certainly, and maybe of his 70 work period. So I think what I have to do is like start trying to hunt down the destroyer ducks now because I think I could really appreciate them at this point. Yeah, I was re- rereading Marvel Comics down to the other month, and it, I was like, I I feel like I have first destroyer duck. Mm-hmm. It's Steve Gerber and Jai Kirby writing about how corporate comics have screwed them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> how can that not be spectacular? I know it's sort of like how have I not read that yet? Really, it just kills me. So. Ah, me. Well, so, Graham, um, uh, the clock is kind of... Uh, the, the clock is against us, my friend. Yeah, I think so. Um, I, so, listeners, we are off next week again. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but we're back after that, and I think when we're back after that, we might stick around for a bit. Yeah, we might try and give it... I mean, we'll see. <laughs> my, my, I seem to have an infinite capacity to of... Um, of being able, my capacity to be break my brain knows no limits. But I would love to do like yeah, a full four weeks or five weeks to make up for these skips, and also kind of to get things going so that we can like. There's so much stuff that I we didn't even really talk about. So, and by the time we talk in two weeks, I'm sure that ev- even with some slightly marginal and minimal comic book reading, there'll be a ton of stuff piled up. So, comics are great, Jeff. Comics <laughs> podcasts. Slightly less. <laughs> Comics podcast listeners, truly spectacular. The best, absolutely the best. Uh, so yeah, look, listen for us in uh, two weeks. Uh, we appreciate, as always, your patience, your comments, um, and uh, in my case, the I, I, comics codes. Uh, but also, uh, we appreciate if you could tell Jeff why he should be buying his niece, because the two of us brainstormed, and I'm sure there's stuff out there that we've never heard of that we should be recommending to his niece. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if, if you've got got that kind of stuff, definitely throw it our way. That would be terrific. So, um, yeah, and otherwise, uh, we'll talk to you later. Bye! Perfect. Perfect.